I want to give a shout out to Aventus, the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto market. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today we have a very special episode of the show. I think Colin and Ashlyn, our two policy wonks, so to speak, have been on before. Colin, you were on once before, but there was like a technical snafu. I don't remember. Ashlyn has co-hosted once before, but this is the first time that we've all been together, just the three of us. So it's very magical. Um, since the inception of digital assets, I, I think it's fair to say that both the industry and investors alike have been waiting for so many different answers on how the government views the space, the parameters in which companies can operate. And those questions have really reached the fever pitch with the new administration and some new folks heading and helming some of the various agencies such as Gary Gensler at the SEC. So anyway, without further ado, we have Ashlyn and Colin both here. Today, we're going to kind of navigate a lot of what we've been seeing on the Hill. There's a lot of different questions, like I said, that face the United States. So let's just kick things off, right? It's been a while um, since we've had you both on the show. It's great for you to both be with us to update our listeners on where the U.S. stands right now in crypto policy. Um, thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks Thank for you, having Frank. me. Yeah, we'll, we'll kick things off with Colin, since you're kind of our boots on the ground, so to speak. You were on the Hill. I, I'm sure you were sweating profusely. I remember the last time I was in D.C., it was pretty egregious. And everyone's really mean. Like, you know, you, you want to get to the, like, Hart Senate building. They're like, what are you doing here? Like, you're not allowed here. And, you know, it's 100 degrees in the swamp. But anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's yeah. a misery loves company phenomenon. So what's going on? So yesterday there was all these different hearings, Senate, congressional. What, what's the rundown? I mean, so this is going to come out in a couple of days. So we're talking about Tuesday, the 27th. And there were three distinct hearings going on that were, um, you know, closely tied to crypto. So I was actually at the Senate Banking Committee. They had one that was titled Cryptocurrencies. What are they good for? And the immediate chorus reaction that is obviously absolutely, absolutely nothing. nothing. Yeah, that one was the one that I was paying the closest attention to. And the banking committee has held hearings on crypto before. They are the ones who are most directly connected within the Senate. This involved a lot of a lot of the same kind of war drums, I would say, especially from you know Sherrod Brown, who is the uh, the chair, and Elizabeth Warren has been getting more involved. 
Um, but at the same time, it was while they were doing what they kind of have traditionally done, being like, we need to make sure that we take this seriously. And this is like hard regulation needs to come to people who are manipulating markets and whatnot. There was actually a lot more knowledge on display than I had traditionally seen. So, I mean, some of it was pretty theatrical, but some of it was clearly these people have been, you know, studying up and doing their homework. Uh, so that's a positive sign, I would say, from what I've been seeing on the Hill lately. So what was kind of like the main takeaways like what, what policy prescriptions might render from mm-hmm. this? Or was this all just kind of like rhetorical? Well, I mean, a lot of the hearings end up being more educational and kind of positioning where people stand. Uh, so nothing seems to be on the horizon on the basis of what I saw yesterday. But more broadly, you know, outside of just these hearings, I'm definitely on the lookout for new approaches to regulating crypto exchanges. And that's partially because of what people have been talking about in those hearings and partially also because Gary Gensler has been kind of priming the pump on those sorts of conversations. And now Elizabeth Warren, I mean, just today, you know, we are expecting some response from Gary Gensler to Elizabeth Warren asking for whether the SEC needs new powers to put together an appropriate regime for crypto exchange regulation, which is huge. Ashlyn, you weren't necessarily there, but you were paying close attention. Does that jive with what your takeaways would have been? Well, actually, the beauty of working on a policy desk is that you can cover more than one thing at once. Um, So I was covering the House hearing on CBDCs while Colin was taking point on the Senate. So actually, Colin is very much, uh, I, I have not even done more than read Colin's article about that hearing yet. But in terms of the CBDC hearing, it was definitely not as fiery, I'm sure, as what Colin was experiencing. That being said, what was really interesting is that there was real agreement that the U.S. is behind when it comes to creating a central bank digital currency. And regardless of of how people feel that that should be done, there's real agreement that the U.S. is is losing and people are very, very worried. Um, Obviously, China is the buzzword and that came up a lot. I believe it was Representative Himes said, you know, whenever you say the word China, people in Congress sit up and the word China was definitely used a lot (laughs) in the CBDC House hearing yesterday. There's still some disagreement related to how a digital dollar would look. And I mean, I think that's pretty clear from any comment that you see from any place in the U.S. government, whether it's the Fed discussing what it might look like or Congress. Uh, you know, it's it's unclear how much of a, a public-private partnership it could end up being. It's unclear how much control people will want the Fed to have uh, in a digital dollar. But the fact that a digital dollar is imperative to the U.S. innovating and staying on the cutting edge of monetary policy uh, is pretty clear and, and pretty unified. Interesting. So there's kind of like this overarching support on the CBDC side. You mentioned in your articles yesterday that there was kind of this anxiety growing around China and its advancement on that front. And then Colin wrote a piece about about the sentiment, right? Kind of seeing the Senate warm up to crypto to a degree, despite some pot shots at Bitcoin mining, to quote your headline. Let's let's zoom out and think about what the current outlook is for crypto exchanges, since many of the listeners, these are where the bulk of our industry participants work. Did we get any indication of what, what regulations might be in the pike for crypto exchanges? And was there any conversations regarding FATF? 
Well, I mean, I think when it comes to crypto exchanges, right, the easiest place to regulate something is the on and off ramp. And so that's why it's it's going to be exchanges. But that's coming from a lot of different places, right? So we're mm-hmm. waiting mm-hmm. for regulation from the IRS that's going to be related to brokerage rules, um, which is going to create a headache for exchanges. We're waiting for more clarity on FATF's travel rule and and how that's going to look. And that's also going to create headaches for exchanges as they figure out how to comply. And also Congress is now talking, you know, Elizabeth Warren's letter that Colin mentioned asks what the SEC is going to do about exchanges. So I'm not sure it's necessarily that we're waiting for exchange regulation. It's more that the way crypto is going to be regulated is going to be related to on and off ramps. And that just happens to be centralized exchanges right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, also, I mean, a big thing that we haven't really mentioned yet is what's happening with BlockFi, which is what you you know, similar but different. Like the fact is a lot of crypto exchange regulation, particularly in the US, has been it's tied up in the fact that it's kind of a, a chimera of a system, right? So, I mean, exchanges had to register with, you know, FinCEN and various state regulators as money services businesses for a long time, kind of on this principle of, I mean, like FinCEN has had some of the oldest guidance in the US on this uh, convertible virtual currencies. These guys need to be money services businesses. Since, you know, this bull market that the first section of 2021 brought us, like that market cap grew so much that suddenly there was so much attention on these things as exchanges. And people are asking, like, where does this go? Because the CFTC, right? Part of this issue is the CFTC does not have regulatory authority over spot markets. They bring enforcement actions over malfeasance, fraud, market manipulations in commodities markets. The SEC has a lot more of continuous, you know, regulatory authority over equities exchanges in the US. So what people are looking for, you know, it, it's trying to square that circle of like, where exactly does this fit within the regime that we already have? And the people within the industry don't particularly want to see a whole new regime created for crypto because that becomes having to start over from square one. So I mean, that's what we're seeing right now in terms of exchange regulation. And so Warren looking to Gensler for any sort of enhanced authority for the SEC, that would be a huge deal. That would take a ton of pushing to suddenly reconfigure the authorities of the SEC to incorporate all sorts of crypto exchanges. But I mean, we are seeing that happen in Canada. What do you think, Ashlyn? Yeah, I mean, I think we are at, we're getting to a boiling point. I don't think we're there yet, but all of a sudden you're seeing players like Elizabeth Warren ask that question of, do we need to retool the structures that we have? For so long, we've been in this conversation of people saying our laws are technology agnostic. You know, what we have will work. We just need to figure out which buckets to put crypto and digital assets into. And I think in a lot of ways, people are starting to question that mentality. Not totally. And that doesn't mean that we'll see a huge rewriting. But I think people are starting to look a little bit closer and say, okay, what regulations do we have that actually will work here? And what really isn't going to get the job done? Mm. So how much of a focus was BlockFi? Because that's been one of the bigger regulatory stories of the of the month. Mm-hmm. Where does that fit in with all of these different themes that we've kind of been unpacking? So I haven't heard, I don't know, you know if you've heard anything different, Ashlyn, but I haven't heard anybody at the federal level really weigh in on this quite yet. But no. um, part of the idea is... All right, so BlockFi, what they are offering is interest accounts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they are at significantly higher you know, rates of return than any sort of savings account you could get at a bank in the United States uh, by an order of magnitude. 
And part of what is happening at the state level there, I think it's four states at this point, started out with New Jersey, which is where BlockFi is based. But they are, these securities regulators within the states are saying, oh, what you're offering isn't backed by the FDIC, which it's not. They don't, you know, it's not FDIC insured in the same way that uh, the equivalent savings account would be. And in the absence of that sort of backing, what you were offering is some sort of, um, it's some sort of investment into BlockFi's lending strategy, which qualifies it as a security. I mean, these are all brand new and these haven't even, you know, these haven't become proper legal actions yet. There are a handful of cease and desist letters at this point. And I don't think they've had to stop serving existing customers in any of these jurisdictions. But that question of whether this product that really does aim to imitate a savings account just without FDIC insurance and with a higher rate of return, whether that suddenly inherently becomes a security. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it also gets to, not to sort of put us on a different path here, but I think that gets to a really interesting domino effect that we've been seeing in banking regulation, where mm-hmm. we've seen this constant like bumper cars between the FDIC, the OCC, and the Fed on you know who is in charge of what and what does that mean? And that's in a similar way what's happening here, where the mandate of one agency and how you fit in, how a firm fits in to that agency's mandate could drastically impact how it fits into another agency's mandate. And then we could see some conflict there, which we already have when it comes to crypto firms applying for banking licenses. And while this isn't quite that, we're seeing a similar issue play out for a different type of firm. Mm. I mean, ultimately, it is a, a huge question of what exactly ends up qualifying as a security because those those invite into themselves so much more regulation, so much more reporting and changes the entire way that an industry player needs to exist. It also changes the way agencies need to regulate because I think what crypto has shown a lot of regulators and, and what they seem to be starting to agree on is that there's going to need to be coordination in order for any sort of effective framework to emerge. Yeah, I I think it seems like people are starting to realize that they're going to have to get on the same page and uh, agencies can't be perhaps as siloed on certain issues as they have been in the past. Mm -hmm. But I mean, have you seen these people try to coordinate? It's it's (laughs) it is a nightmare. It's 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 a nightmare. It is at the very least quite slow. Although, I mean, the OCC promises that it's in a sprint with the Fed Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. the FDIC. So we'll see how fast uh, the hill sprints. While we're talking about this, I was thinking like the stable coin situation is also a huge one. This might not. I, I wanted to talk to you, Colin, a little bit about this just because you know far more about stable coin regs than I do. But since DM is committed to working with Silvergate and it's sort of in its regulatory transition period, I feel like I haven't seen as much about that as I would have thought. Mm-hmm. What have you been hearing? Yeah, the prospect of DM launching as an independent stable coin is at this point one that I would... uh very much not bet on. I guess I'll put it in that kind of like recursive way. Like I think I think as a stable coin is probably dead. You know, yesterday Sherrod Brown took time out from his whole intro speech to effectively just criticize the fact that this was the shell game of Libra's identities over the course of, you know, trying to cope with regulators and ultimately giving up. But um at the same time, the work with Silvergate, what I have heard is that this is more about reconfiguring to become a service provider to an eventual digital dollar, which is an interesting, you know, an interesting thing I've heard come up in the context of all these other private stable coins. You know, they will have to change extremely quickly if 
the Fed does try to digitize the dollar. Still an open question whether that's going to happen. And this is kind of what like the president's working group just convened some you know, behind closed doors meeting. Very little information came out of it. Um, I guess Michael Sue was the acting director of the OCC. He told Bloomberg that they were actually looking into Tether's reserves, which has been a standing question forever, and like who is in charge of checking on Tether's reserves. But for the rest of the roster of private stablecoins providers, they're all looking to see what's going to happen with a digital national federal reserve full faith and credit dollar. And they might ultimately end up contractors assigned to uh, assigned to work on that, and that's where they make their bones. But we shall see on that front. So is there any legislation that's in the pike tied to stable coins, or is it more so just been like, we need to look at this, we need to look at what the reserve backing is, and then this, to your point, Colin, this, this notion that if we get some sort of digital dollar, they're going to be relegated to some second class type situation. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that there is any major stablecoin regulation or not regulation, any major stablecoin legislation that is coming out of the current Congress, that could change. And that would be one that I would be on the lookout for following all of these hearings. But there was a ton that came out right around the time of DM. And the idea of federal regulators looking into, say, Tether's reserves, that is suddenly changing who is responsible for these things, because that was part of what happened is the New York Attorney General, New York Department of Financial Services were taking point on that whole investigation. And if that goes and becomes a federal thing, if it suddenly becomes any entity seeking to tie the United States dollar with some digitized version, they need to answer directly to US federal regulators. I mean, that is, that's a huge change to the whole stablecoin market. And I mean, you're seeing it now, all of these entities are printing fewer stablecoins. They are spending a lot more of the resources in compliance um, resources that were at one point dedicated to kind of expanding user base. They're also starting to kind of throw punches at each other. Oh, Paxos you're talking about? Paxos, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So it seems like they're all trying to be like, or at least from Paxos's perspective, trying to make themselves look like they're the most regulated game in town. Yeah, this stretches back. I mean, these reserve breakdowns, this is a relatively new concept. How do you break down these reserves in a public-facing manner what is required for diligence? I mean, people are still arguing over whether there's going to be, if it's possible to do this on a real-time basis, so you can just kind of have a periscope into whatever reserves these entities are keeping. This is all developing very quickly. I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance, market risk, and transaction monitoring. With some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations and mitigate the risks of fines and reputational damage. Visit AventusSystems.com today to find out why 80% of the firms who take a custom demo become clients. Shine a light on your trading today with Aventus. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. 
I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone, and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at Exodus.com today. What do you think some of the more surprising, like, did anything happen the past few days that just really shocked you? Honestly, the BlockFi thing for me, that was the most shocking development of the past few days. Um, also, mm. Uniswap's, uh, the Uniswap Foundation, them deciding that they weren't going to provide access to some of these derivatives and also Binance cutting some of its uh, derivative offerings globally. Those are big. That's what everybody's asking right now. I don't know if you guys have any clarity, but it just seems like all of this. I don't want to come off conspiratorial, but FTX lowering their leverage access at the same time as Binance and then, you know, that them kind of trying to de-risk their platforms. It seems like someone out there is is trying to bring the crypto exchanges within the more tamed financial markets. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if that's necessarily a conspiratorial thought unless you're thinking there's like a little man behind a curtain doing it, you know? Like that's that's just sort of the zeitgeist <laughs> right now, I think. People are realizing that, you know, the days of the Wild West are very much numbered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Binance has operated on such a huge scale for so long. I mean, the the fact that they had a 2 Bitcoin withdrawal limit daily for unKYC'd wallets, that's incredible you know when two bitcoin 80 grand you can get 80 grand a day out of that without having to go and through any sort of kyc and they managed to do that by virtue of you know being a little hard to locate but i mean globally people have been getting better at locating these entities outside of crypto so i mean in the case of suddenly these exchange operators need to be more conscious of particularly what's going on with the SEC, particularly whether they're offering, you know, derivatives or outrageous leverage. I mean, that's, uh, I think that was to some degree inevitable, especially if they kept scaling up. Hmm. That's not to say there are, there are a lot of smaller exchanges out there that are doing exactly what they've always done. Do you think that like these moves are going to, is this like reactionary or like a proactive step that's going to make maybe regulators more favorable towards the space? Hmm. I I have no idea. I I think it's really hard to tell how anybody ever feels yeah. about anything. <laughs> well, was it you know it's so funny? Kind of bring the conversation like back to back to Gensler. Like he at some point seemed to be pro crypto. Like it was an it was kind of like a welcomed entrance relative to hmm. former SEC chairman Jay Clayton. Has that kind of reversed or dampened? It's very interesting because you always have a variety of narratives and one of them and perhaps the loudest is always the narrative that the crypto community is telling itself. So the idea that Gensler was going to be crypto sympathetic, there were definitely, you know, factors that could have made him very crypto sympathetic and he's certainly crypto knowledgeable, you know, that's indisputable. But the fact the idea that he was going to be, you know, the harbinger of a new era for crypto regulation, I think well, that was certainly a possibility, and that still is certainly a possibility. I think 
the crypto community perhaps built that story for itself in some ways and is maybe a little bit disappointed that it hasn't come to the fruition that they predicted it would. Yeah, it it is also... I feel like we need to draw the distinction between, you know, pro crypto and kind of pro anarchy. And Mm -hmm. Gensler was never going to come in and say, oh, you know, none of these are securities. Like he was never going to say, you know, anonymous 12 year olds can trade at 100 times leverage. That was, you know, that was. Like I remember, wasn't it um, Mike Orcutt who wrote that piece on um, essentially sort of combating that narrative of like what against, like why a Gensler led SEC might actually be a little less crypto favorable than some people were touting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Am I, I mischaracterizing I that story? That. I remember that that coming out at that time. And it was a really interesting, mm. I guess, like a really interesting idea to juxtapose to a lot of the excitement that was bubbling over at the time. And I mean, by the same token, it's nothing has, I mean, we haven't seen a major SEC enforcement of the scale of, you know, Telegram, right? We're, we're not seeing that sort of stuff. We're seeing just kind of general statements that are maybe laying the groundwork. But also, it is an area of focus for Gensler, but it, to me, it seems like he's very much focusing on these ESG disclosures. These are kind of the priority, and these are more proximately in the SEC's wheelhouse, regardless, right? A publicly traded company, what do they have to disclose? All right, and that's very much in the SEC's purview, and they're deciding what are the new ESG things that they're going to have to disclose. Um, determining whether or not the SEC has jurisdiction over you know, the mm. regulatory regime for exchanges, whether exchanges of cryptocurrencies, and depending on which cryptocurrencies, need to report directly to the SEC. I mean, that seems like something that is going to require congressional approval. I could be wrong, but I, that does seem like something that is going to require congressional approval. And that's part of what Warren was asking Gensler for, is what sort of authorities would you need? So that is going to take a long time because legislation moves significantly slower than even slow regulation what's slower than that uh, you know the, the other like when we the other figure in this sort of shakespearean drama is probably elizabeth warren she's kind of become like a villain to the crypto space although it doesn't take much to become a villain in crypto <laughs> she just like thinks it's all garbage like she doesn't see any value in any of it she thinks that stable coins are a threat is it really just kind of like sinners at the hands of an angry God or is there some actual substance to what she's trying to propose? It is very fire and brimstone for sure. But I do think a lot of this- Did you like that literature? Like that literature? Oh, I, was, I was going right back to catechism. <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to like make a metaphor of holding spiders over a fire and I was like, that's just not going to work. <laughs> yes, that would be very Jonathan Edwards-esque. Yeah, so no, this whole like night on bald mountain scene that we're conjuring up here. <laughs> Uh, this, uh, I don't see her as long-term all that interested. It does seem, you know, these are my opinions. These are not the opinions of the block. It does seem like a lot of her sudden interest in crypto came around the same time that the Colonial Pipeline got hit, right? And um, JBS got hit by ransomware. And so suddenly, you know, she's an, she's an ally of the Biden administration and kind of directing attention to this is a thing that we are solving, like this is a thing that we are hammering on, we take this very seriously. It does seem to be part of, I don't want to say strictly optics, but heavily influenced by optics. She's not out there introducing legislation. She's not out there calling for specific changes to the regulatory structure that governs crypto. Uh, But she is out there kind of condemning a lot of things that people have been condemning for a long time. She's just particularly articulate when she's doing so. I mean, Crypto Twitter yesterday had a field day with uh, 
shadowy super coders was her right. line Right, shadow yeah yeah yeah, yeah super coders i think yeah and that is strictly rhetoric and it's pretty evocative and it's definitely memeable and she's good at that stuff but that is getting your message out there in that fashion is not the same thing as actually changing the structure that surrounds the industry I think something is coming on that front, but it's going to be a lot slower. And I don't even know if she's going to be the one pushing for it. I mean, has anyone, th this this kind of can lead to uh, an interesting way to close. And I don't know if you guys have an answer, but, you know, this ransomware uptick that we've seen in crypto, has there been any legislation or anyone step out and figure out a way to kind of take care of that without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? So it's definitely gotten more priorities. So, I mean, this is something that pretty clearly these are criminal actors and you have criminal authority. You know, this has gotten to be a higher priority for the DOJ and for the DOD. So it doesn't seem like this is necessarily going to turn into, this is going to turn into the basis for regulatory overhaul so much as suddenly you're going to see investigations into these players. I mean, after you saw the 2016 elections and sudden revelations about kind of, uh, disinformation campaigns coming out of St. Petersburg. I mean, it was like the Internet Research Agency and then Project Blachta. After you saw that stuff, you saw new regimes of sanctions based on suddenly being able to identify these people. So, I mean, if you have more resources at the DOJ and the DOD going to these things, I expect we're going to see more particular actors unveiled. And also, it's become this element of kind of foreign policy in a way that is brand new. And that was something that the executive branch had the authority to do all along, which is say, hey, Russia, China, you all need to get your internal situation in order. We know you can find criminals when you want to. You should want to find these ransomware gangs. So that's already happened. Mm. Right. And I'm most of my experience with the ransomware narratives is as a news consumer rather than a reporter, since Colin really heads up most of that reporting. That being said, what I find really interesting is usually when it comes to crypto and a lot of the concern related to it, we've seen this discussion of, you know, terrorist financing and, uh, you know, AML concerns, things that have existed and, and still pose issues for the dollar for like so long. And it's these sort of shadowy ideas that were like, what is terrorist financing really? Like, what does that look like? And what does that create? And like, we see certain investigations where we can describe what that means, but they're just sort of buzzwords. Whereas ransomware now presents like a really new novel problem that is directly correlated to crypto and that people can actually point to and say, this is something that's a crypto problem. And therefore we have to, we have to figure out, you know, a way to deal with it mm -hmm. rather than just sort of lumping crypto into illicit financing concerns that, you know, anybody who also is pro crypto can just say, you know, have you heard about cash? Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> well, Ashlyn, Colin, I want to thank you guys so much for the great work that you've been doing on the blockcrypto.com to keep us all up to date and informed on all of these regulatory policy happenings, having to listen to kind of sift through the, the noise and find out where exactly we're heading from a regulatory perspective. Thank you so much. We will have you on again soon. And and folks, if you're not familiar with uh, Walk Talk, which is Ashlyn's baby, you can check that out on News Plus on the blockcrypto.com. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, The Scoop will be back next week. Talk to you all soon.